Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Bernardo Batis Lasso. And today we have Martin Carmen Kelly and Daniel Garcia Suarez talking about his latest book, Cellular an economic and business history of the international mobile phone industry. Um, Martin Campbell Kelly is an emeritus professor in the Department of Computer Sciences at the University of Warwick. Anybody that is interested in the history of computing has read some of Martin's work. Um, He is the author of a number of key contributions to the area, such as ICL, a business and technological history, the airlines reservations from Sonic uh, the Hedgehog, sorry, and a history of uh, the, as a sof- history of software industry, and uh, Daniel Garcia Schwartz has a PhD from the University of Chicago. He has been a consultant for about twenty five years in what is called antitrust or competition policy in in Europe. He has peered, he has contributed to a number of peer reviewed articles and books on the economics of high technology, uh, including the electronic payment industry, computer hardware, software, and mobile phones. With Martin, they have co-authored two books. First one was Mainframes to Smartphones from Harvard University Press in 2015, and this new book, Cellular, from MIT Press, which is out this this week. Thank you very much, Daniel and Martin, for the coming to New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you. Right. If uh, you can briefly tell us how you two met and how you started to work together uh, first on the uh, mainframes to smartphones book and then how the idea of cellular came about, please. Well, um, it for me, it started with um, I was doing some uh, a small consulting work for uh, Microsoft at the time. <laughs> And um, uh, they introduced me to Daniel, who was then working for a, a different company, uh, LECG. Um, and we uh, decided to write some articles together. So this is probably about 15 years ago, and uh, we've been doing it ever since. That is exactly right. And um, the idea of writing this book, right, from mainframes to smartphones, I think was basically writing um, a history of the computer industry that incorporated two perspectives that perhaps were had been sort of neglected or disregarded to some extent. One, it was an intent, it was an attempt to write an international history of the computer industry. Um, you know, there were histories of the computer industry in specific countries. But what we try to do is essentially write a sort of an international and comparative economic history of the computer industry. The other perspective that we incorporated in the book was precisely the economic and business perspective. So that was that was the essence of the book, an international history and an economic and business history. Thank you. But then why cellulars? I mean, I think that on, on the one hand, it's evident we all have a mobile phone these days, or most people around the world have one. Uh, also, the penetration of smartphones is very, very high. But how how is it that this idea of looking back at, at this industry came, came about? Well, one of the problems with uh, the history of computing is that 
Um, it's very difficult to integrate communications into the existing histories uh, of computing. So, I mean, I've done lots of history on the uh, on the mainframe era, the 1960s and onwards, and the PC era in the 1980s. Uh, at that time, they weren't really uh, integrated with communications technology. And that remains a problem now with the history of computing, because it really needs to be broadened into the history of information technology, which would include both communications and um, and uh, computer technology. With this book, um, for me, the rationale was that the smartphone is really a new computer platform as important in its way, uh, if not more important than the mainframe or the personal computer. And nobody has yet written a history of it from an international perspective. Um, I have on my bookshelves probably 20 histories uh, of, of mobile telephony, uh, all of which are either about a single country or about a short era, perhaps ending in the 1990s. And we wanted to write something that was international, uh, so that it'd be a single source, so that anybody who wanted to know about the history of mobile telephony worldwide would be able to use our book and, uh, and, and find out um, how it worked both, both for 40 years and worldwide. Right, and, and marking is actually emphasizing um... One of what I think is the the nice things about this book, right, which is really a, to some extent a, a complement to the to the previous book, which is what we are doing here in cellular is comparative. You know, we are comparing the evolution of the industry across countries. There is a whole new, uh, you know, a, a, a whole new literature that precisely takes that approach. It's, it's a comparative approach. It essentially compares and contrasts the evolution of industries across countries because that allows you to see what is really driving, say, faster growth, right, of the industry in a specific country. So that was sort of the approach. Write, write a book about the cellular industry that is comprehensive that covers the, the four generations, maybe now we should say five, and that also through comparisons allows you to understand and identify the factors that may have driven the growth, faster growth in specific countries or regions of the world. Thank you. Yes. And then, I mean, this is a very challenging project, which I should congratulate you because Ultimately, it's very, very readable. And, and this is not because I am biased, but really, once that you get into the book, you, you really engage because it's, it's written in such an open language that it um, captures you. And even, even you know, you, 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 you really, it's very difficult to, to, to leave on, on the side. But having said that, it, you know, you, you have to make some trade-offs if you want to make this big overarching history over a very long period of time, because you use we'll 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 get to that in a moment, because you, you start with with Marconi at the end of the of the mm -hmm. of the nineteenth century, taking it all all the way to today, then you know there are trade-offs. There there are some stuff that needs to be left out. What is it the you know, what sort of decisions? were made around what goes in and what is left out? What sort of things were left out? Well, I think one of the um, issues was that, uh, I mean, I've written histories of, uh, of the mainframe era. And one of the things I would have done in there is to actually interview people um, and, and get sort of personal stories about actors in the industry. But when you're talking about um, the worldwide industry, that's a, the wrong level of granularity. Um, so that, uh, for example, one, one of my friends was, uh, one, was um, a, a big noise in the GSM era uh, in, in Europe. Um, and he's a good friend, but I, I've not interviewed him, though of course I've talk, talked to him, um, simply because uh, we've got to talk about GSM really in two pages. So. To, one couldn't really uh, take a single actor and 
insert his career story within that book. So I think there's always that problem with a, a global perspective like this, that uh, that the level of granularity is is really very high. You're talking about sort of nuggets of information, not not grains of information. Right. I I have uh, basically three areas uh, where I would have liked to say a bit more, but um, given that we had constraints about the length of the book, and given that Martin always prefers shorter than longer, and I, I now have come to agree with him in terms of you know the length of the book, uh, we, we left them out. One, one was that I was very interested in the early history of you know electromagnetism and the experiments in the 19th century, the mathematics in the late 19th century of Maxwell equations and so on and so forth. And Martin said, there is no room for that in the book, which, you know, I came to believe that that was the right, the right decision. Um, another issue that is very interesting is, as you know, many of the standards, many of the cellular standards were actually shaped in committees, right? Committees were companies and organizations of various kinds came together and spent hours debating about technologies, you know, narrow band, wide band, and this and that. And there were games played in these committees, uh, you know, companies that wanted to essentially uh, support certain technologies. And, you know, companies played games with one, one another, organizations prefer one on another technology. We basically had no room to explore the intra-committee uh, games that people played, right? And another thing that is not really discussed at length in the book is intellectual property issues, right? Um, uh, intellectual property issues that are still unresolved, right? Because when companies and organizations come together uh, for to determine cellular standards, they bring intellectual property, patents, technologies. Um, and then, you know, the, the way history evolves, this intellectual property that is essentially part of the standard becomes a source of conflict and potentially litigation. That's still going on today. We really had not a lot of room in the book to discuss these kinds of issues. Right. Thank you very much for that. Let's let's make a pause or let's make a, a parenthesis here. And before we go into the into the into the book it, itself, what is it that you would recommend to an early career researcher about writing a book? And I don't know why you 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 chose or how is it that you um, signed with MIT Press. I mean, you you both have have, um, and particularly Martin, has has experience working with top publishers. So, at the same, but at the same time, uh, Danielle, you're you're coming from from a practitioner perspective, uh, although you've you've written a number of, of articles and, and and you have a PhD. Um, so what sort of advice would you give to, to an early career researcher in, you know, putting a proposal together and being able to, to, to convince a, a top publisher to, um, to go with that manuscript? Well, um, we wrote a prospectus that we sent to uh, MIT Press, and it was, I think, probably about 12 pages long. So it was really quite detailed. We really thought through what we were going to do. Why we chose MIT Press is that um, there are a lot of uh, prestige university presses. We wanted a university press um, for the prestige, but MIT Press is particularly effective actually at marketing. And it has a very strong uh, series in the history of computing. So it was kind of a no brainer really that we should go with them. Um, and, and they have actually proved it extremely effective. They're, they're very, very good at, at marketing. Um, and the prices are quite reasonable compared with many other university presses. I would say, and I won't mention names, but probably compared to competing university presses, I would say that their prices are probably two thirds 
uh, of the competition. So th th that was the multiple uh, reasons for us. But but in terms of right, but in terms of you know picking a a topic, um, I don't know. Martin Martin can can talk from from his own experience. Right, several books on various aspects of the computer industry. Um, I think he would agree that it's almost impossible to spend five, six, seven years doing research on a book and writing a book without feeling deeply interested in the subject, right? Um, I, I, I don't think any one of us has ever decided on a topic just because we thought it would be interesting to somebody else. Although, of course, that consideration is there. But I think, you know, Martin and I have written quite a few articles and a couple of books now and we i think we were we were very clear that we were both very enthusiastic about the subject we were researching on and writing about yes i i think i think every book should be a brick in the wall of history, that it does add something <laughs> that people will come to it in 50 or 100 years time and find some information in there that they wouldn't find elsewhere. I always think the historian's job uh, is, is to press a, a, a lot of facts in, into a funnel uh, with some nuggets coming out of the, the narrow end. So our job really we see as being to digest a huge volume of information and make it accessible for people who don't want to spend a lifetime researching the subject, but need to get an overview of it. And, and a funnel you have done because it's quite, you know, as, as we've said, it's quite an overview of, of the industry. It, it starts, you know, it's uh, 12 chapters long. It starts with the, um, as you entitled the first chapter, the long road to the first cellular system. And in the conclusions, you touch on uh, 5G technology. And in the meantime, you are interweaving these stories coming from different countries as diverse as Japan, the United States, uh, the UK, Mexico, Israel, Brazil, right? And then the issues that are affecting the, 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 the industry and, of course, time. And, and trying to make, um, as you say, trying to divide up the, um, the story in, 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 in decades, in 10-year in chronology. Why then start with, you know, right at the beginning with, with Marconi? Well, I think that's simply uh, kind of history to start at the beginning. And also it was a topic that interested Daniel a lot, and I indulged him. Yes, I, as I said before, I uh, I would probably have written uh, a whole chapter on on the history of the science and the experiments of electromagnetism in the nineteenth century, but uh, then we decided I shouldn't, and uh, it, that was a right that was a right choice. But going back to your to your question, Bernardo, I think um, you know. Uh, when you start doing research on a project like this, you, you feel overwhelmed, right, by the amount of data on the one hand and um, uh, documents, all old documents, and then a whole literature, peer-reviewed literature on both technical and economic aspects, right, of cellular evolution across the world and over time. But uh, I think the what we have done is we have tried to filter that mass of information through certain themes, through certain, I don't know whether to call them hypotheses, that come essentially from the economic history and business history literature and essentially put what was left, what went through the filter in these, I don't know, 350 pages that are in the book. I mean, there is no, I don't think there is any other way of, 
writing history, right? You have to have some sort of framework of reference because if not, when, when everything is relevant, nothing is relevant, right? So our filter, I think, is um, an economic and business history that takes the technical aspects of cellular phones seriously, as, as seriously as, as can be taken in a short book. Well, um, 350 pages, I wouldn't call it a short book, but I do call <laughs> it very engaging and very, very interesting because I think that for the general reader, um, you are not overwhelmed with all of the, uh, what I call the nuts and bolts of technology, which is something that people that are in the history of technology and certainly the history of computing tend to indulge in, you know, going into the very nitty gritty of, of <laughs> the hardware uh, and, and how things kind of come together. And you are, when, when you say that, or my interpretation of what you say, that it's a business history is because you are looking at how the different business actors are, are coming together and, and putting these networks um, to work. Yes. So, I was I was hoping to find uh, somewhere and, and and I was not sorry to find it not to find it the the weight of the first um, mobile phones which I think <laughs> they were fifty pounds or something like that no you you needed a truck to to get them to move from one place to the other <laughs> uh, but was very pleasantly surprised I, I didn't know that it was actually the police who was um, making these first you know after the first experiments making these uh, systems work. Why do you, I, I think the, the, the answer might be obvious, but why the police, and, and which is a state actor in, in a way? Daniel. I mean, the, yeah, go ahead, Martin. No, I was going to say Daniel, because that, that was the part that you wrote, I know. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it was, it was the police, but not just them, right? I, I mean, what people, um, I'm going to say something about the police in, Obviously, the police did it because um, because they needed to communicate with you know with with a central location, particularly when there was something funny going on and they needed a rapid response, right? Uh, that's really what mobile phones, pre-cellular mobile mobile phones. Um, essentially contributed to the job done by policemen and police women. Um, but there were many other, there were many other um, organizations, corporations, companies of ver various kinds that used mobile phones in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s that were not cellular phones. That's a part that people sometimes miss, right? Um, you can still look, um, you can still watch online the videos that AT&T has made available, very old videos about how people use pre-cellular mobile phones in the US in the 50s and 60s. And then you can, you can look, look up and watch videos about the contributions that the first cellular systems, um, AMPs, right, in the U.S., and, and they, they take on many other names in various, various countries, made vis-a-vis pre-cellular phones. You can, if you, if you have half an hour today, you can watch those videos, and they are fascinating. <laughs> um, you know, companies of various kinds use pre-cellular mobile, mobile phones to talk to their sales agents and uh, you know personnel of various kinds. So that's that's a little bit of the foundation. One of the reasons we included the illustrations in the book um, really was to address that sort of issue because the issue of um, what were the early mobile phones like? A lot of people uh, who read this book and especially in the years to come. Uh, will not be familiar with what a mobile phone looked like in the 1980s. So um, we chose pictures that would show, for example, the size of a mobile phone in the 1980s, which really was the size of a, a very small suitcase. Um, and they get progressively smaller. Um, but 
you know, uh, people were not typically obscene a phone from the 80s or, or even the 90s, uh, depending on the age of the reader. Exactly. And we have completely forgotten that some of these also involve, as you make uh, a point, um, ships when, you know, having to communicate with, with um, boats and cargo uh, offshore is and, and was very important. And it's one of the early, early drivers as, as well. And probably um, some of the listeners will still remember when uh, some of those early mobile phones, that is telephony that could be driven, literally driven from one place to the other, um, <laughs> was the size of the, of the um, you know, the, the backspace of a, of a car or, or stuff like that. But you make that, that point and, and from right from the beginning, it's not the same thing to talk about mobile phone. Uh, telephony than to talk about cellular the telephony so um i don't know if you want to explain you know how that change came about um briefly well i think that the cellular idea came about from uh when before cellular the cellular technology um you were limited really to having a high power transmitter over a, a very large area uh, and that very much limited the number of channels you could get in a single a single wave band. Um, the idea of cellular then was to have lots of low power transmitters um, kind of pa passing a, a signal baton from one cell to the next uh, so that um, the channels could be shared. So that although you had the same number of channels within the spectrum of each cell, you could ended up with very many more channels overall. So you could, uh, rather than having say, a hundred users um, uh, in, in a, using a partic particular uh, mast, you, you would be able to use perhaps a thousand. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Right. It's it's the idea of uh, frequency reuse, right, that the industry knows very well. I, imagine with pre-cellular technology, there are these stories. And in fact, it's one of in one of the AT&T videos, uh, somewhere between 10 and 20 simultaneous mobile conversations could be had in Manhattan. Imagine, right? You are number 21 and you call and they tell you, no, gosh, we have no no more frequency to give you. We have no more channels for you, right? You have to wait in line. There are other there are 20 other people already having this or 20 other calls, right? Being being had, being held. But the, the frequency reuse concept that comes with cellular uh, essentially changes by an order of magnitude in the early years. And then by many orders of magnitude, the number of simultaneous conversations that can be had in the system, right? The other, I think, advantage uh, is that uh, cells can be split, right? Um, and by splitting cells, uh, the early systems were able to accommodate a lot more people, a lot more subscribers, a lot more calls within the existing spectrum allocation, right? And it's all driven by this idea of frequency reuse, how to, how to design the configuration of cells to allow for optimal patterns of frequency reuse, right? As, as Martin suggested. Right, thank you very much. Now I am going to 
ask a question which has been part of a conversation that Martin and I have had for some years now. And that has to do with the idea of network economics, which is central to your story. And network economics is succinctly put, when something is worth more to those inside and to those which are coming in because of the fact that one more people comes in. That's a, a way of putting it uh, very simply. That is something that happens in telephony because uh, when you have a telephone system and you only have two people, when you have a third person coming in, then the network has more value for um, everybody because you know you can now make more calls between um, first it was two, now you have uh, more options and so on and, and so forth. A question is who captures that increase in value, but that, that, is, that is besides the point. Now, the question is network economics are central from the word go to the book. How does this help to explain or, or, or create the incentives for the different standards to come together and, and to have countries which are um, adopting this technology at different rates uh, to kind of to agree in this standard? Does it play a role or does it or doesn't it? <laughs> wow, that's a that's a good one. Um, there's always a tension really between um, uh, trying to monopolize the market <laughs> with your with your standard and also the uh, kind of the public benefit of having a um, of having a single standard throughout a country. Uh, and I think the standards committees and governments played an enormous role on this. I think otherwise one might well have ended up with a a balkanized system of telephone every telephones everywhere. It's the government really that um, sort of drove the standards. Uh, well, not just the government, but it's also the engineering institutions, I think, played an enormous role uh, in doing that. There was also a benefit, I think, that many of the early uh, telephone systems in the 1980s were already nationalized industries. Um, so they were used to the idea of having a single standard pervading the whole nation. Um, and I think it was therefore not quite so hard uh, to integrate the different suppliers. I think the political obstacles were much smaller. I think perhaps that was less true uh, in the United States. Right, and, and building on what Martin just said, right, uh, one issue we discuss uh, quite a bit in the early chapters is the distinction between um, open and closed uh, cellular standards, right? A few countries in Europe in the 1980s, Germany, France, Italy, they had um, what we would describe as closed standards, right? One company developed the specifications of the standard and owned the intellectual property. They sometimes licensed other technology suppliers to supply technology in the marketplace, but for the most part, there was not a lot of competition within the standard. Whereas, um, the Scandinavian countries uh, with NMT 450 and then NMT 900 and uh, in the US with AMPS, they created what we would describe as, as open standards, right? Where the specifications were jointly determined and shaped and they were made available to a wide variety of technology suppliers, which in turn, foster competition within the standard, which in turn lower technology prices for those who, you know, ad adhere to the standard. Um, and it's very clear that open standards uh, grew much faster or facilitated faster adoption of cellular than closed standards. In fact, the closed standards were not adopted um, almost anywhere other than in the countries where they were developed. Um, and the same happened with GSM, GSM later, right, in the second generation, which was, I think we would describe it as an open standard. Of course, there are debates about how open and how close some of these standards were. But I think as a general description, that's a fair description. 
Thank you very much. Let me go back to something that you both mentioned, and that is that the role of national providers in, in this story. National providers or the creation of, of telephone utilities was again a result, at least in, in some instances, for the realization of network, uh, well, economies of, of, of scale rather than network economics. At, at this point in time, you know, in, in the middle of the of, of the 20th century, um, economies of scale were seen as a rare occurrence. That is when the average cost of production comes down as you increase production. And 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 therefore you you know these these were um put to the side and, and they were named natural monopolies and that was the justification to to have them as government owned and regulated so that there was a, you know there was a monopoly it was this monopoly was because the, the, the bigger the network the cheaper it was going to become so it was not uh, appropriate to have a private provider there. Uh, but nevertheless, in this story that you're telling, you see pri uh, private companies come in again. And as time moves on, then these this economies of scale um, stop being something that, it, that are rare and they are pervasive in, in throughout the economy. And you know, in, in with the internet and with a number of, of of technology providers, so I I don't think it's so much of a question as much as asking you to to reflect on on this transformation of the business space and how does that look like from your perspective? I this was actually the most interesting aspect for me personally of the work we did because. Uh, I'm politically, I'm quite to the left, and I think Daniel is too. Um, so uh, I come from a country, Britain, where we have a national health service, and many of our uh, state enterprises were privatized uh, during the Thatcher era. Um, and we're actually suffering many of the consequences of that right at this moment as I speak because of the, uh, the current energy, the surge in energy prices but that's another story um but what happened uh in the thatcher era and britain in many ways was a pacemaker globally for the uh for developing a mobile phone infrastructure and how it worked uh in the uk was originally there was a monopoly uh with the post office uh which owned the was the telephone operator um that was then privatized so that it became British Telecom uh, and a whole host of competitors were introduced as well. And I, actually it worked its magic really. I think it vindicated, I mean, I find it quite difficult <laughs> politically to, uh, to accept, but I, uh, I can't really argue with the facts that I think uh, mobile telephony would not have developed nearly so fast in the UK uh, had it been, uh, a monopoly of the post office. Uh, it really was a remarkable effect. Yeah, and, uh, and I think it's very clear in the book, uh, particularly if you if you read it as we wrote it, right, I, with this comparative perspective in mind, that uh, once you go from the 1980s to the 1990s, right, which is in most countries, not only the transition from analog cellular to digital cellular, but also the transition from monopoly cellular, monopolistic cellular providers to at least duopolies, and in some places, oligopolies, um, there is an, a remarkable increase in what we call cellular density, right? The number of cellular subscribers per 100 people. So one theme, if, if one had to pick one theme in the book, clearly that's it. That competition, particularly with an efficient and effective regulator monitoring competition, works very well. It worked very well to foster the development of the industry. It's clear that there was room for at least two suppliers and then three, four, 
maybe five. If you get, if you look at the 2000s where we study the structure of the cellular network services market, um, most countries have settled into a market structure that has two, three, four providers. It's hard to find markets with eight or 10, right? But you see three or four. So there was room for three or four, that, that, that's clear. And that had a phenomenal impact on the evolution of the industry. A lot of people got access to cellular phones uh, once prices started declining, price network services prices, right? The technology prices were already declining in the late 1980s, but network services prices collapsed with competition in the 1990s. I think that's a message of the book. Yes. I think another point, because uh, you were asked about economies of scale, Bernardo. One of the issues was that the in the Marconi era, uh, his business strategy, if you like, was to own the equipment uh, and, the, and, the, and was also a service provider. What happened with the cell phone industry was that um, it became very fragmented. So you had handset manufacturers, infrastructure providers uh, and service providers so that um, the handset manufacturers were manufacturing for all the service providers. Uh, so that enabled them to get the economies of scale. But if, for example, a service provider had manufactured its own, its own handsets, then it wouldn't have got the economies of scale. So the fragmentation of the industry was tremendously important. Right, thank you very much for for that. Now, um, Daniel, Martin has told us in, in his res previous response about what was most su surprising for him of doing the research. What was the most surprising aspect for you while doing this research? Um, that, that's a fair question. One, one thing that I, I mean, there were, there were many things that were surprising, but one thing that was quite surprising to me was understanding uh, the role that national governments played in the evolution of the industry, right? Governments have played a role in, in many different ways, in many different high technology industries. But I, if you think about cellular, the role of national governments was, was particularly important. Think about it, right? Uh, first, governments allocated spectrum to cellular and to many other uses, right? So without this allocation of spectrum, there was no cellular industry in, a, in any particular country. So how quickly they did it and how generous the allocation was mattered for the development of, of the cellular industry in a specific country. Think about another subject, right? Governments granted licenses to carriers, to, to net, network services providers. So they could grant two licenses, they could grant 20 licenses. Now, of course, 20 was an, you know, a number that was absurd, right? Nobody would think about granting 20 licenses, but if you grant two versus three versus four, to some extent you are shaping the nature of the market in a specific country, right? More, pro, more careers versus less. Um, think about another subject, not, not to make this too long, but in the early years, uh, the cellular provider, the main cellular provider at least, was a subsidiary of the national uh, telecom, postal and telecom administration. So there was this suspicion that the government would benefit its own subsidiary, to put it, uh, you know, um, uh, bluntly, versus a potential private competitor that would enter the market, right? It's the old story of raising the costs of rivals, right? And there was a suspicion that, the, that governments would do that. Now, at some point, national governments uh, create an independent, more or less independent telecom regulator that in many countries, India, for example, plays the role of defending 
the private competitors from the old telecom bureaucracy. So all these, you know, all these aspects of government intervention in the cellular industry are peculiar, I think, of the cellular industry. Um, maybe people would disagree with that, but I'm almost convinced that that's a fair characterization. Thank you very much to both. And then coming into the conclusions where you bring all of these things together and, and you start touching on the implications of, of 5G and and some of the, um, I mean, you, of course, de dedicate uh, uh, chapter five to talk about specifically about, about China and you, you talk, touch on about China, but, you know, 5G was very much at the middle of this um, trade war between the US and, and China. Um, what would be your expectations um, about what the promise of 5G is and what it will actually be able to deliver? I'll start to Daniel. <laughs> um, I, I think we uh, explicitly say that we refrain from making predictions, right, in, in the book. I mean, um, I, don't, I don't know what your experience is with um with 5g um i i think there are different views of how much it will deliver or particularly there are different views about how fast it will deliver what it promises to deliver um i think there is a lot of stuff going on uh, you know beneath the surface that will come to the surface in perhaps a few years time that we are not seeing yet, right? The, um, you know, um, internet of things and um, self-driving cars and all, all of those promises of 5G, I, I would never say they will never come to pass because Martin and I know very well that even within the confines of the first four generations, people today use their phones for things that would have sounded crazy in the 1980s. So I will never say that technological prediction will never come to pass. I, I think we have to wait a little bit more yet, but we may be surprised, right? Mm. If we come to see it, we may be surprised by what the cellular industry delivers, frankly. Yes, yeah, so one of the interesting ideas is that um, at the moment we're all using uh, wired internet into the home uh, or either through fiber optics or, or hardwired. Um, the promise of 5G, of course, is that it could render that, that wiring obsolete. <laughs> um, and quite, quite uh, whether whether at some point in the future uh, we will not have a wired internet in the home, but simply use uh, use all our internet connections exactly as we do use a mobile phone in the open air. Uh, and I don't know whether that will happen or not. One of the lessons that we found in the book was that where there was an existing wired landline structure. Uh, the development of mobile telephones was quite different uh, to where there was no pre-existing system. So, for example, uh, in uh, in Africa, African countries, where there was a very low density of of landline telephones, mobile tele telephony very quickly uh, became dominant. Whereas elsewhere in Europe uh, and America. It was landlines are probably still still the dominant communication uh, medium over mobile phones, uh, simply because of the pre-existing infrastructure, uh, which uh, uh, nobody has destroyed, as it were. Um, so I, I think we're probably going to get a similar system with 5G and the existing wired Internet. Thank you very much for that. And one last uh, question. Um, what is it that you're uh, working on? Is there a new uh, joint project? <laughs> we are actually working on, on a couple of things, if I may um, 
point that out. Uh, we just finished writing a chapter uh, on persistence and change in the international information technology industry for the Oxford Handbook of Industry Dynamics, which is being published by Oxford University Press. And um, also they have asked us to write a chapter on writing the economic history of the computing industry for a multi-author book that will be published in the next probably couple of years, perhaps by MIT Press, although that's not entirely clear. I actually like this idea very much, reflecting on a lot of the papers and books that Martin and I have worked on over the last maybe 15 years and what have been the, you know, the, the themes, the approaches, the methodologies that we, that we have applied to the study of the history of computers, right? Which in our case, it has been essentially economic and business history, but um, that, that's a chapter that I actually, the, the idea of the chapter I, I like very much. Well, I have a project um, which I've told Daniel about, but he hasn't yet responded very, very affirmatively. Um, I wrote a history of the software industry uh, quite some years ago, which stopped around 1997. The book appeared in 2003 and the three. The, the reason I stopped in 1997, because it was just at the point where one could sense that the internet was going to change everything. Um, and I think we're due for a, a second volume in that history of covering the post-1997 era. Uh, since when we've had cloud computing has absolutely transformed the software industry. Uh, software as a service um, has again transformed the industry. And I think we will have to uh, to write that book, but I'm getting too old. So I really want Daniel to write it and I'm going to encourage him at the sidelines. So Thank we you. will have to have a conversation about that after after we finish the, uh, the podcast, I guess. <laughs> Yes. Well, thank you very much, Martin. Thank you very much, Daniel, for, for being with us. Thank you very much for our listeners. And uh, for those of you who are our subscribers, do rank us, do leave comments that help us a lot. And for those of you who are not yet our subscribers, please do so and um, follow us. You can follow us in Twitter as well with uh, at new books on uh, new books network as well as new books n esp which is the spanish version or channel for new books network as well as with uh, myself batis lasso will uh, be there again martin daniel lovely to speak uh, speaking to you congratulations on a, on a great and very readable and super interesting book um and that's all for us today Thank you very much. Bye-bye, Bernardo. Bye-bye, Daniel. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.